In John chapter 4, verse 46, the Bible says, He came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Except you see a sign and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that it was the hour that Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The Apostle John is demonstrating to us through writing the book, the Gospel according to John, he's demonstrating to us in this book exactly who Jesus is. And over the past four chapters, we have seen on full display the divinity of Christ. That is, that he is God in flesh. That he is the embodiment of the Father. He is the physical manifestation of God. He is divine. We have also seen his humanity. That he is man. That he is mankind. That he thinks and feels much the same way that mankind does. And we see this in his compassion. We see this in his emotion. We see this in the physical limitations. We have also seen his love. We have seen him in these past four chapters express love to his family, love to his disciples, love to complete strangers. And we have seen his grace, his favor that he bestows upon people that is undeserved and unmerited. And John continues to show us these things. And in continuing to show us these things, he records how Jesus healed a public official's son without even visiting the house. In fact, without even visiting the town. Jesus healed this man's son. And now this is not insignificant. When you're reading the book of John, there are no insignificant details. Every story that we read in the book of John is important to demonstrate to us who Jesus is. And in this moment that we see Jesus interacting with this official, this in the King James Version, he was a nobleman. He's a public official. He is a royal. He is somebody high up that should not, that normally would not have felt the need to lower himself to travel himself to another city to seek a doctor. Usually this is the type of guy that would send somebody on his behalf. But this man came to Jesus personally. And in this interaction, we see Jesus for who he is. First of all, we see his propensity to heal. That he wants to heal. That he wants to bring healing. That he wants to bring comfort. Secondly, we see our Lord's propensity to cultivate faith, to build our faith, to grow our faith, to give us something to root our faith in. And then when we look at this public official, when we look at this nobleman, we see what faith looks like. Because we throw that word around a lot, a lot, don't we? Faith, faith. You have faith. The faith to do this, the faith to do that. What is faith? And what is it really? We'll talk about that this morning. 
So first, let's look at the Lord's propensity to heal. In verse 46, the Bible tells us that he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. That's a very popular passage of scripture, by the way. A lot of people love the miracle of turning the water into wine. Um, you find that reference quite a bit. But the water into wine miracle was just showing us the humanity of Christ. The turning of the water into wine was not officially on the road map to get Jesus to the cross, yet it was important enough to our Lord to do this. And the reason he did this was, one, to show his divinity, but two, to show his compassion, because without that wine, this wedding was going to be ruined. And I don't know if y'all know this or not, but it's almost impossible to recover from a ruined wedding. Um, you know, if you're the pastor and you're officiating the wedding, you need to get this right, because if you don't, the couple will never forget it. Now, they may laugh about it, and it may be funny to them, but they'll never forget it. And so, you know, this was an important deal. So Jesus turns the water into wine at Cana. And we learn from that how the Lord is concerned, not only with the big picture, not only with the big plan, but he's also concerned with maybe what you would consider smaller issues that are creating anxiety in your life. There is nothing too small for the Lord to handle. This location and seeing how Jesus was concerned for this family and concerned for his mother, and that so he turned the water into wine. This location is a reminder of how deep his love for us goes. So you're concerned about something, you're anxious about something, something is causing you grief, something is causing you bereavement, something is causing you stress. The Lord cares about that, and he wants to heal that. And so being reminded that we're in the city where Jesus turned the water into wine, we are reminded once again of his very character as he enters into this situation with this nobleman and his son. In verses 50 and 51, we see that Jesus chooses to heal this nobleman's son. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. This nobleman had done nothing for Jesus. He hadn't even properly addressed Jesus as being the only begotten son of God. In fact, Jesus said, except you see a sign, and except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This man didn't even believe Jesus was the son of God at this particular point. But Jesus healed his son anyway. That shows us grace. That shows us his compassion. That shows us his propensity to want to heal. Jesus does not wait until you are the perfect Christian before he begins to work in your life. Jesus does not wait until you are where the preacher says you should be before he begins to work his transformation, his healing, and his redemption in your life. He begins that process long before you have a conscious thought of who he is. Jesus has a propensity to heal. He healed the nobleman's son, but that's not all he healed. Because Jesus rarely heals a physical illness without healing a spiritual illness. Amen. The physical illness is an indication of what he is going to heal in your spirit. When he heals blindness, he doesn't just heal your eyes. He heals your spiritual blindness so that you may see who he is. When he heals paral the, the, the paralyzed man, when he heals disabilities, he doesn't merely heal a physical disability but he heals a spiritual disability that prevented you from coming to know him as Savior. 
Jesus rarely heals a physical illness without healing a spiritual illness. As a result of this man's healing, this man becomes a believer. He not only healed this man's son, he not only healed this man's sorrow and his anxiety over the health of his son, but he healed this man's unbelief and converted him into a believer and saved his soul. There is a spiritual healing that took place there. We read in the book of Luke how this man that had palsy had four friends who carried him up on the roof of the house and cut a hole in the roof so that they could lower him through the, through the roof to Jesus so that they, they, he could meet Jesus and be healed. And what's the first thing Jesus said to this man? He said, son, be of good cheer. Your sins have been forgiven you. The first thing Jesus did with the man of the palsy was he healed his soul, his spirit. And then the Pharisees were murmuring about themselves, who does, who does this man think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus said, so that you know that I have power to do this, so that you know that I am God in flesh, arise and walk. And the man was healed physically. That's right. Jesus has a propensity to heal. And he heals not only our bodies, he heals our spirits. The Lord healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. This man has been sitting there 38 years. My, how long that is. I'm only 43. Okay? So if this were today, this man would have been sitting there from the time I was five. Think on that for a minute. This man has been by the pool of Bethesda for years. And... The idea was that at a certain season, an angel would come down and stir the waters. And the first one that got in the waters after they were stirred up was the one who would get the physical healing. But this man has a problem. He can't move himself. So this man is inches from what he believed to be physical healing, but he cannot get there. And Jesus walks up and says, you want to be healed? He goes, sir, I don't have anybody to put me in the water when this thing is stirred. And nobody else around here has the compassion to let me in first. This man is still looking at his own idea of what healing will be. And oftentimes, we miss the Lord's blessing because we have an idea of what we need to heal. I need $500 more. That's what I need to heal. I don't need $500. I'll take it, but I don't need it. Um, you know, if I just had a little bit more money, that would solve my problems. If my car was a little newer, that would solve my problems. If I lived in a bigger town with more opportunities, that would solve my problems. And we get so focused on that, that Jesus could be standing right next to us saying, you want your problems fixed? Lord, you don't understand. I don't have $500. I don't live in a bigger town. I don't have a newer vehicle. How is it supposed to happen? He's like, do you want your problem solved? So you got this man at the pool of Bethesda. He's just inches away from healing, but he can't quite get there. And Jesus walks up and says, will you be made whole? Will you be healed? He goes, I can't get in the water. He's like, like, I'm about to teach you something here. He heals the man. This man goes off, doesn't even know who Jesus is. Takes up his bed, walks off, <laughs> doesn't even realize Jesus healed him. I'm not even, I'm not only out of the passage, I'm out of the book right now. I'm in a totally different book of the Bible, but follow me here. The Pharisees confront him because you're not supposed to be carrying your bed on Sunday. He goes, the guy that healed me told me I could. Who is this man? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some guy down the pond. And so this man winds up meeting Jesus later. Becomes a believer. Yes. Jesus healed his physical body, healed his spiritual situation. 
I think one of the great tragedies of our lives is that we accept the spiritual healing, the physical healing. We accept the physical healing. We get healed physically. We have our problems solved. And then we walk away without the spiritual healing. And we don't even realize half the time that we need it. 9-11, that Sunday after 9-11, well, this building wasn't packed because it wasn't here yet. But the church I went to was packed. People had a physical problem, were under attack. When we realized that George Bush had it all under control, we took that as the physical healing and we walked off and went on our way mm -hmm. and we neglected the spiritual healing yep. that we could have received as a nation mm -hmm. in those churches. You see this time and time again in scripture, how Jesus heals the physical ailment, but then leverages that to heal the spiritual ailment. And between you and me, the spiritual problem is the problem that needs healing. That's right. Because if you are healed spiritually, you can handle whatever life throws at you physically. We need the spiritual healing. Jesus said to Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Our Lord's primary mission is to seek and save that which is lost. When Jesus spoke these words to Zacchaeus, he is speaking to a publican. Not a Republican, but a publican. This is a man who turned on his own people, who betrayed his own people, betrayed his faith, betrayed his God to collect taxes on behalf of the Roman government, and in so doing, enrich himself by stealing money and wealth from his own people. The Pharisees believed back in that day that if you were a, a publican, you could not go to heaven. You had sold out your birthright, and no matter what you did, you were going to hell. Yet Jesus told Zacchaeus that he was now a child of God. He said salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. He is still a receiver of the promise. For because the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Amen. Jesus seeks and he saves. When he spoke these words to Zacchaeus, he literally walked on the earth and he preached the gospel himself and he led people to salvation himself. Today, he works through his people and he works through his churches. You say, that's not very impressive, Leland. I met some of those people. I've met some of those churches. We're not that perfect. No. We fall short. And you know why we fall short? Because we're broken. Because yeah. we need healing. Yeah. We're churches and God's people fall short as we convince ourselves that we no longer need the healing. We no longer need the redemption. We no longer need the forgiveness. We've got all we need. We're perfect now. Now everybody else has to catch up. When we get into that mindset, we can be a pretty destructive people. What we need to do is remember that we continually need the Lord's healing and his transformation, yes. his spiritual healing. But today the Lord works through his people and through his churches to seek the lost and to save the lost. His mission is salvation, and he proactively seeks those whom he will save. Through salvation, through salvation, repentance and faith and being redeemed and brought into God's family, that's where you find healing. That's where you find spiritual healing. That's where you find emotional healing. And that's where you even find physical healing. 
you find the spiritual healing because when you come to realize what the Lord did for you on the cross and you turn from your sins and you trust him to redeem you, to forgive you, to cleanse you of those sins of your past, to cleanse you of the sins of the present, to cleanse you and to pre-forgive you for the sins of the future, when you trust him for that redemption, you are set free. And you are no longer at war with God. You are no longer in this struggle with God. That brings spiritual healing. When you have that life dwelling within you, the spirit dwelling within you, the spirit that is aware of the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus, that brings us emotional healing. Yes. Because we see just how good God's been to us despite <laughs> everything that is going wrong in our lives right now. That's right. And physical healing. Let me tell you something. If you have the spiritual and the emotional healing, there is not a physical ailment that will pull you away from God. All the healing is there. It's in salvation. And salvation comes by faith. Faith. There's a word, faith. I need faith. I need to get some faith. Where, where do you get faith? They got that at Dollar General? Is over there next to the cookies? No, you won't find faith at Dollar General. Or Family Dollar, for that matter. Dollar Tree doesn't even have faith. You can't find it at Walmart. It's not in the electronics department. No. Faith is a spiritual gift. That's right. Scripture teaches that faith is a gift from God. That he gives you faith. That he, en that he endows you with faith. That he fills you with faith. You say, where's that in the Bible? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Right. We get all caught up in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where it talks about love, that love never fails, that love vaunts not itself. And, he goes, and then we go to the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and we get really excited about the gifts of prophecy, the gifts of knowledge, the gifts of tongue. But the, but the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that uh, when that which is perfect will come, that which is imperfect or that which is incomplete will be done away with. But there are three spiritual gifts that remain in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And those are the gifts of faith, hope, and love. Amen. And the greatest of those is love. Yes. But faith is a spiritual gift. Do you know that God works in your life to cultivate faith? I use that word cultivate deliberately. When you think of cultivate, what do you think about? You think about plowing. You think about planting. You think about watering. You think about fertilizing. My, I come from a long line of tomato farmers. And it's funny because I can't grow a tomato. Okay? I can grow tomatoes if I buy a tomato plant that already has tomatoes on it. If I got green tomatoes on that vine, I can get them to be red. And then I can make my sandwich. But I, I have never in my life successfully raised a tomato plant from seed to tomatoes. Jessica and the kids have. I haven't. And so, but tomatoes are a plant that require a lot of cultivation. That's why I fail at this, okay? You have to start them out in a hot box, in a somewhat warm environment during the middle of the winter. Mm -hmm. And then you move them to the garden and you give them this little ring thing so that the vines can grow up on it and use that to climb up. If you don't have that, that's going to create problems for you. You have to take many deliberate steps to grow a tomato plant. And if you're as good at it as my family is, 
you'll get enough to grill a few burgers with at the end of the at the end of the summer. Except they had lots of plants, so they we had lots of tomatoes. It was a good year. The pandemic year created a lot of anxiety. But my family grew tomatoes and squash and zucchinis and okra, and we had a good we had a good time as a family. Mm-hmm. It was good. Um, but you, there's a lot of cultivation. There's a lot of cultivation. Just like you have to work to grow that tomato, that's how God works to cultivate faith within us. In verse 48, Jesus says to this nobleman, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus diagnoses this man's condition. Now, the the, the man thinks his condition is that his son is dying. But the condition this man has is unbelief. And the problem with this man's unbelief is he will not believe unless he sees signs and wonders. He needs to see a sign. And this was common for people that day. Jesus continually criticized them for requiring a sign, for needing to see signs. And so what Jesus does here is he heals his son, but this miracle is not about healing the son. This miracle is about showing this man a sign so that he will believe. You see, Jesus wants to heal. He has a propensity to heal, but he also has a propensity to cultivate faith. So he wants you to believe, but you seem to have an inability to believe, so he's going to do the things in your life it takes to bring you to the point of belief. We love the verse Romans 8, 28, don't we? We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. That means if Matt fires me Monday, Jerry Jones is going to hire me to be the general manager of the Dallas Cowboys on Tuesday. No, that's not what that means. That's not what that means. I will never be the general manager of the Dallas Cowboys. Would love to. It's not happening. It's not happening. Let's be realistic, all right? Set proper expectations in life. You'll be disappointed less. Romans 8.28 tells us that what it takes to bring us to salvation All things work together for our good. What is good for us is being redeemed. What is good for us is being saved. What is good for us is being welcomed into God's kingdom. Spending an eternity in his kingdom as opposed to an eternity in hell. That's what's good for us. And so God works together everything in our lives for that good. He's cultivating our faith. And if you don't believe me, you can read the 10 verses in front of Romans 8.28. And you can read the 10 verses after Romans 8 28 Mm -hmm. what you see there is God working to bring us to faith what you don't see is a promise to make Leland Acker the general manager of the Dallas Cowboys okay you see a promise to cultivate our faith and so that's what Jesus is going to do with this nobleman here in John chapter 4 he is going to cultivate his faith Jesus gave him a sign so in verse 52 he asked them the nobleman asked his servants when his son began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, yesterday at seven o'clock. And the nobleman's like, huh, interesting, at seven o'clock yesterday I was talking to Jesus, and he told me my son was going to be healed. The father knew the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. Jesus cultivated this man's faith and brought forth a faith tomato, perfectly red with the right texture just right. The book of John is full of signs that Jesus gave. That's the point of the book of John. Yeah. John's not writing us a biography of Jesus. He's writing us a series of great signs and wonders and teachings that Jesus did for the purpose of cultivating our faith. Amen. says at the end of chapter 20, he said that by reading, you may believe. Do you see how our Lord cultivates 
faith. He cultivated Thomas's faith when Thomas doubted. Jesus was dead. He was buried. He rose again. There's a lot of uncertainty. Jesus shows up to a meeting of the disciples. They're happy to see him. Jesus is gone. Thomas missed church that night. This is why you don't miss church, okay? Because next time they got together, Thomas shows up like, Thomas, you'll never believe this. You'll never believe this. Jesus showed up. He is resurrected. He did rise again. He was here, Thomas. He was here. And Thomas says, listen, a lot of weird stuff going on. I ain't going to believe nothing unless I can see the marks in his hands and I can put my fingers through the nail holes and thrust my hand into his side. And you know what happens? Jesus shows up and says, okay, Thomas, here you go. The nail scars, the side. Do what you got to do. Thomas didn't do it. Thomas just fell to his knees, his knees and said, my Lord and my God. You see how Jesus cultivated Thomas's faith. And Jesus said, blessed are you. I mean, you saw him believe, but blessed are those who, without seeing, they still believe. There was a father in the book of Luke cried out to Jesus, help my unbelief. He helped him. And today he cultivates our faith. By giving us the scriptures, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The question is, are you allowing the Lord to cultivate your faith? If faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, are you spending any time in the word of God? Are you recognizing when God's moving in your life, when God's doing things in your life? Are you repenting from your unbelief and praising Christ for who he is like Thomas praised him for who he is? Are you putting the pieces together like the nobleman did in this passage? Are you crying out to the Lord to help you with your unbelief? And are you allowing your faith to grow through the study of the Bible? Your faith. Okay, so the Lord grows it. He cultivates it in you. But what is it? I've told you all about tomatoes this morning, but if you don't know what a tomato is, that means absolutely nothing to you. You've got to know what faith is. Faith is a deep-rooted trust in the Lord and a firm conviction of the truth. You see this in the nobleman when he finally puts it together. This nobleman is in Capernaum. He's living the good life in Capernaum, but his son is sick and his son is dying. Jesus has been down in Judea working signs and wonders and miracles and preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. Jesus has come through Samaria, back up to Cana, and this nobleman hears that Jesus is in Cana. All this nobleman knows about Jesus is he's worked these great signs and wonders and did these miracles down in Jerusalem. That's all he knows. Well, if these doctors can't do nothing, maybe that guy can do something. So he's going to go talk to Jesus, see if he can get his son healed. He took his pocketbook, I'm sure. Money is never discussed in the, in the passage, but I'm sure he was willing to write a check for his entire fortune to save his son's life. He's going to go talk to Jesus. He's going to get his son healed. That's all he knows about Jesus is if anybody in this world has the power to do it, then he does. The source of the power, what kind of power, that's of no consequence. I just want my son healed. He goes from that to, a, to an idea that he knows that Jesus can help. And we know that, don't we? Don't we always hear Jesus is the answer? We don't know how he's the answer. You know, but he's the answer. So when I get in trouble, I'm going to go to church. Just like this nobleman here. Nobleman goes to Jesus. Jesus assesses his condition, 
tells him his son will live. At this point, he believes Jesus, he takes Jesus at his word. This great, powerful man tells him my son's going to live. Okay, I'm going to head back home. That's, that's what we can do. He's got a simple belief in his words. You know, you can know the Bible. You can believe the Bible. But you can totally fail to have faith in, in the Lord. You can totally fail to have faith in Christ. You can quote as much scripture as the greatest theologians in the world and still completely miss the point. Amen. You know, when Satan was talking to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, Satan's just sitting there throwing scripture at Jesus. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is throwing scripture right back at him. Because Satan could quote scripture. Yes. But Satan couldn't apply scripture. And Satan certainly was not in a place to put his faith in Jesus. In fact, that's how he became Satan. He rebelled against him. So this nobleman goes from knowing that Jesus can help to trusting Jesus' words. But when he finds out that his son was healed at the moment that Jesus told him that your son will live, mm -hmm. now he knows who Jesus is. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. And he believed in him. You see this deep-rooted trust and conviction when Thomas says, My Lord and my God. At this point, Thomas goes from a fearful mourning disciple to a man who would lay his life down for the Savior. Do we have faith? Do we have a deep-rooted trust in the Lord? Do we have a conviction of his truth? And is that something we are willing to take to our graves with us? Do we trust the Lord? We all need healing. We all need healing. We need spiritual healing. We need emotional healing. We need physical healing. We're all battling something here. We're all battling something. We should trust that our Lord is in the healing business. Yes. I mean, I tell you all a lot how sometimes the things that you pray for are not going to happen and sometimes your worst nightmares are going to come true. I'll be remiss if I let you think that without you knowing that whatever happens in your life, he is working to your good to bring you in, into his kingdom and transform you. But that doesn't mean that the Lord always works in your worst fears and your worst nightmares and by taking things away from you. Sometimes he's just trying to teach you that you can turn to him yes. and that he'll resolve those issues for you. Our Lord is in the healing business. Spiritual healing, emotional healing, physical healing. To experience that and to experience that to its fullness, we need to fully trust the Lord. Allow him to cultivate our faith and to trust in his timing and his processes.